Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, Visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. And oh boy, are we going to have some insights today because on the phone with me is one of my all-time favorite guests and a repeat visitor to this program, and that is the one and only Tom Philpott. Um, For those of you who don't know Tom, Tom has served for the last five years uh, as, uh, well, He's a columnist, a food editor, and a senior food writer for Grist. He was. He's a co-founder of Maverick Farms, a center for sustainable food education in Valley Cruces, North Carolina. And before that, he worked as a financial journalist in Mexico City and in New York, which is a little bit strange, but we're going to forgive him for that. Um, And now he writes for Mother Jones. And um, I read his column religiously, uh, and I love and respect every single thing that he says because he's always so smart and he's always so on the money with his topics. So welcome back to the show, Tom. Thanks for joining me. Always good to be here, Katie. Oh, I appreciate that, Tom. So you have written extensively about the almond business in California, and most recently you posted a piece about how um, rather than ratcheting down uh, because of the you know long-term drought in California, in fact, they're doubling down and more trees are going in. So um, what's, what's the story there? Like how are they, how are they, <laughs> they going to keep those trees alive when they eat no water? Well, there's a lot of money in those in those almonds, and wow. for that reason, it makes sense for these operations. Some of them are family operations, and some of them are run by big, huge companies. In some cases, hedge funds and insurance companies and things like that. But, you know, water comes at a price, and the price is getting higher in California, but the price of almonds keeps going up. Um, and, you know, basically, you're talking about, you know, some of that is, you know, People here in the United States reading more of them, you know, almond milk and um, yeah. almond, almond butter, butter and that, yeah. that whole craze. But the real driver is demand in, in Asia. Uh, really? It's going through the roof. Yeah, places in um, China, India, um, also Europe. Uh, Europe has an um, uh, increasing appetite for almonds. And the Mediterranean region, you know, Spain, Italy, um, has relatively small production. Uh-huh. California makes uh, California grows about eighty percent of the world's almonds, which is astonishing. So, yeah, yeah. And so it, when demand grows, it is the place that people look look to. Um, you know what's interesting to me about that is, and I'm not sure whether it was you who wrote about this or whether it was another piece that I read about almonds, but but the sort of the big business aspect of it and the fact that, that as you mentioned earlier, the hedge funds, um, you know, really large financial players are moving into this market. And that, I think, is is kind of one of the more interesting aspects of the growth of the industry overall. I mean, aside from the demand, but the demand is obviously telling hedge fund managers and, and other sort of major financial players on Wall Street that this is a really good investment, in spite of the fact that they are going to have to end up paying a lot more for, obviously, they're going to have to truck water in, right? I mean, how are they going to manage that? 
Well, what they're doing now is tapping wells. They are mm-hmm. dropping wells and tapping groundwater. And um, and I think from from the sort of time frame of these investors, they they think maybe I don't know thirty twenty thirty years into the future for a, a land investment. You know, uh-huh. you're, you're you know. What you're doing is you're buying land, which is expensive itself, and then a lot of, you know, putting in a, uh, an orchard, you know, let's say a thousand-acre orchard is no mean thing either. Uh, lots of right. labor goes into that. Laying, you know, irrigation lines, dropping wells, all this costs a lot of money. And so they're, they're looking, you know, not the usual, you know, next quarter kind of um, outlook, but they are, you know, maybe a couple decades into the future getting their investment back. And they're making a bet that there's enough groundwater, enough uh, water in the aquifers underneath the Central Valley to justify that bet. And they've got the capital to keep deepening wells yeah. and, you know, as the water table drops. And that is where you start running into problems because mm. if I deepen my well and water a giant 1,000-acre or 2,000-acre or 3,000-acre almond or pistachio farm, you as my neighbor might not have the resources that I do to right. continue dropping your well low enough. And so you get, um, you know, it's just basically this common resource that people with money are able to sort of grab just by being able to drop deeper and deeper wells. Well, that, that sort of leads me to my next question, because I think in California and probably in the rest of the country will soon follow, but there are very few regulations <clears throat> governing the use of that groundwater. Isn't that true? And so yeah. it does kind of fall to the, the guy with the most money, and, and surely that will change. I mean, I've been reading, like, even in uh, vineyards, um, they're also dropping wells all over the place because they, too, are suffering from a lack of water. Um, and so, you know, I wonder at, at the expense of what crops, for instance, this is going to – I mean, which crops are going to get basically tapped out because of this? And then – I mean, literally, and then and then what municipalities, how are they going to cope with having groundwater, um, you know, be depleted by these big agricultural concerns and not by the citizenry? That's the thing that really well, interests me. Yeah. Well, California is the only state in the West, really, that has, you know, pretty minimal regulations on groundwater. It's important to, to say that last year, um, after decades of fighting off any kind of reform or change, um, the um, the state of California did impose its first several groundwater regulations. Oh, really? Now, the pro- yeah. The problem with it is yeah, there's a couple problems with it. One one is that there are a couple of decades. They're, they're, they're calling for the every watershed to get into sustainability, meaning you know essentially tapping as much water, tapping water at a rate that is being re- recharged, which is a pretty low rate because water recharges at a pretty small rate. Yeah. Um, um, and so it's asking them to move into sustainability a couple of within a couple of decades. And the problem is that you know if this if this drought continues, and we can talk about the likelihood of that uh, in a second. Yeah. But if the drought continues, we may not have a couple of decades of groundwater in in every part of the Central Valley. Now it's got different aquifers in different parts. But particularly the western part and the southern, the southwestern part of the Central Valley, getting into the into the San Joaquin Valley, where a lot of this expansion of almonds and pistachios is happening, is in the worst groundwater situation. Uh-huh. Um, and so the the legislation may not be adequate 
But it was, everyone was surprised when it passed because the, the farming interests have fought this stuff tooth and nail for decades. But things were getting so bad last year that I think people realized that something had to give, and, and so it passed. Yeah. Now, in terms of crops that are going to be sacrificed, well, the first thing is going to be stuff like cotton yeah. and wheat. These are relatively low-value low value crops with not a big booming market for them. And so farmers are switching over, switching out of those things into almonds. But you're also seeing stuff like melons um, and other fruits in the Central Valley. Other non, non-tree fruits um, are, are going under the plow and orchards are going up in their place. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I think that, you know, the, the, the main, you know, in one sense it's a rational move because what the people will say is that when water gets more scarce, you want to move to the highest value crop possible, right? Right. Um, you want to get the most revenue per, per ounce of water. But the problem with, the, with these trees is that if you're growing an annual crop, like a, you know, if you're growing melons, then you can say, and, and I know a farmer in the Central Valley has done this, you can say, well, water's really dear this year. There's a, there's a drought. I'm going to fallow some of my almonds. I'm sorry, it's some of my some of my melons. Right. But with almonds, you're making a you know you're making a basically a twenty to twenty five year investment. Yeah. You put a you put a, a an orchard in. Um, it takes about three years for it to get up to start producing, and then it's got about twenty year run after that uh-huh. producing. And so, anytime you stop watering, you're essentially sacrificing that investment. And so that there's heavy pressure on you to water every year, year in, year in and year out. That's right. That's where we get into pot. That's why um, this uh, this ongoing move into almonds and pistachios is doing what economists call hardening demand. You can, demand doesn't respond to um, you know raises in the price of water. It it goes on no matter what, uh-huh. and so you get this relentless pressure on aquifers. Wow. That's very frightening. I mean, I, I think it's just an astonishing, um, but, you know, just an astonishing development. It's like it's so counterintuitive to me that you would continue to plant, even at the prices that they're getting, uh, a crop that <clears throat> ultimately is, you know, so water dependent and which you will lose your shirt on if you don't keep watering. And yet you're still going to keep planting those trees. I mean, just crazy. Right. Right? But, um, you know, when we're talking about sacrificing or fallowing certain fields, you know, because there's not enough water. So if you don't want to go, you wrote a very interesting piece about moving some of the key California crops to other parts of the U.S. And I wanted to have you chat a bit about that, because um, I thought that was a really interesting um, hypothesis and also like an interesting uh, look at California's potential future. So, um, I mean, I'm going to read a little quote that you wrote here is not only is California gripped in its worst drought in the, the, at least 1200 years, but climate models and the fossil record suggest that its 21st century precipitation levels could be significantly lower than the 20th century norm when California emerged as a fruit and vegetable behemoth. So first of all, where did you get that number of 1200 years? Like, is that... They can yeah, tell well, that from all, strat from stratification of the, of the earth. No, <clears throat> most of the numbers in that sentence come from a study by this incredible um, researcher out of Berkeley named C. Lynn Ingram. Uh-huh. Um, she's a pale, she's a paleoclimatologist. Right. So she looks at she looks at stuff like tree rings and soil sediments to figure out what has gone on in California in the past. Uh huh. 
And what she has found, she wrote a book called The West Without Water, and she's also done some scholarly studies that have been published in mm-hmm. peer-reviewed journals. And um, what she's found is that if you look at, if you go back and look at what, how the, the California climate has been in the past over the you know, thousands and thousands of years, what she figured out is that the 20th century, when we built all this infrastructure to move water from the mountains and, you know, flood the Central Valley and make it bloom. And, right. Um, what she found is that it was a very wet century. It was an unusually wet century. Huh. Uh, just sort of randomly. And um, if, if it reverts to mean, so if it becomes just like another, cent, you know, like the average century, if we're reverting to mean right now, um, which there's a lot of evidence that, you know, there's been less precipitation, even apart from this current drought, then she says we can expect about 15% less precipitation in California. Yeah, um, And this is without climate change. And right. so she's, she's pretty sure that we're reverting to mean, that we're going back to a normal century. Um, and then when you add climate change to it, mm-hmm. what that does is it, that means that the mix of precipitation that we're getting is moving from uh, less snow to more, to more rain. Mm-hmm. And that's really bad news for California because the way that the Central Valley works is that it's, we've got these two massive projects, the State Project and the Central Valley Project, that move water from this, the, the from these the Sierra Nevada mountains. Um, the, the snow the snow gathers in those mountains. You get the snowpack, and then it right. melts in the spring. And these projects move that snow melt uh, to these farms, and the whole thing is built on that snow melt. Yeah, but if it so you're talking about 85%, um, 15% less precipitation in general. And then when you move from uh, snow to rain, it's less easy to capture. It runs off more easily. Uh-huh. It's less useful to farmers. Um, and that, so those two things are telling us that, if she's right, that California can expect a lot less water, irrespective of this current drought. Even if, mm-hmm. if even if we move out and get you know closer to normal snowpacks in the winter next year, we're still dealing with less overall resource. Mm-hmm. And you know a similar analysis. You know we get something like two thirds of our winter vegetables from the Imperial Valley, way down in the south of California, along the Mexican border. Yeah, and that's facing the Colorado River, and it's got a whole its own. You know, horrible set of problems. Yes, <laughs> that I'm writing about right now. So that you know, that's winter vegetables, summer vegetables um, are both grown in California and coming into crisis. And so what I said in my, what I've said in a couple of different pieces is that it makes sense that California would be this agricultural behemoth. It's got this Mediterranean climate. It's got this irrigation infrastructure that's pretty mm-hmm. amazing. It's got these deep aquifers in the Central Valley that are being capped that are, you know, way too fast, but, but they still exist. So it makes sense, you know, basically, you know, it's summer year-round there, and so it makes sense that it would grow lots of food. But does it, can, it really, can we really expect it to grow as much as it is now? And if you look at the list of commodities that are grown there, it's, you know, broccoli, um, spinach, lettuce, cauliflower, strawberries, all these things we've really become sort of hooked on, you know, 75, 85, 95% of them come from California. Yeah. So my my modest proposal is Mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm kind of looking now region by region and seeing that there's great potential 
to grow, not sort of take California off the map, off the food map and disregard California, but just lessen the pressure on it by growing more food in the Midwest. Uh, where right now we're growing, you know, almost 100% corn and soybeans. Right. We could be, you know, we could d- devote not all the acreage or a huge chunk of the acreage, but a small amount of acreage there devoted to fruits and vegetables could take a lot of pressure off California. I looked at uh, cotton makers in the southeast, mm-hmm. um, sort of the old king cotton country. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's producing, it's highly subsidized. It's, um, you know, basically in the grip of herbicide resistance because it's all, you know, Roundup Ready cotton and they're having, you know, the, the whole herbicide resistance weed problem started in the south. And it's raging there. It's still the worst place in the country for it. Wow. Why not break, break that cycle and take some of that land and put it into fruits and vegetables? Mm-hmm. I think the Northeast, up where you guys are, um, mm-hmm. is also a great candidate for, for growing more. You know, I've, and this is obviously, you know, in, it would, you know the, the vision that I'm kind of pushing here would put us more into thinking seasonally and more regionally. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying everyone gets their food from 10 miles away. What I'm saying is let's re, let's um, not completely re-regionalize, but move in that direction, um, spread out fruit and vegetable production from this area that is under such severe water um, pressure. And if you look at a precipitation map, you know, it's a very stark. I, I, I put it in a recent Mother Jones piece. Yeah. The left side of the map for California is, is you know, the, the precipitation in the American West is, and even in good years, the, the map I put up is from, like, 1961 to 1990. Yeah. So even in, you know, good sort of before climate change really took hold kinds of years, most of the precipitation that falls in the United States is in the eastern part of the country. Yes. And so my modest proposal is, because, you know, we did grow fruits and vegetables in all those places, for this, you know, we had this massive specialization in the 20, late 20th century. Mm-hmm. But let's rededicate some fruits and vegetables. Let's rededicate some farmland in those areas. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it makes all kinds of sense in terms of um, just re-regionalizing this food system um, <clears throat> for, to lower transport costs and to increase job opportunities, you know, around the country. I mean, <clears throat> there's all kinds of reasons why that would be a fantastic way to... Um, you know, sort of deal with some of the climate issues and some of the water issues that are facing the California economy. But what would what would it do to the California economy, actually, if we started moving, you know, large quantities of uh, vegetable growth to other parts of the of the nation, you know, in order to compensate for their lack of water? Like, I'm just thinking, like, if California is sort of going to become re-desertified, as it were, um, what will ha- what do you speculate will happen to that economy? Like, how will they compensate for it? Will people just start leaving uh, the southern part of the state, for example, like the Imperial Valley, as you described, which is probably really struggling for water at this point? And what well, impact, actually? What what I really want to know is what impact is that going to have on farm workers too? Right. Well, let's let's take a macro view for a second. Sure. Um, and the the macro view is um, unexpected to me. If you look, so you think about California as a food production behemoth. It's, you know, by far the biggest actual food producer in the United States, taking aside the massive feed production that happens in 
the Midwest. Right. You know, it grows a huge portion of our food. You know, it's this export behemoth in terms of almonds, wine, wine grapes. Yeah. All these things are exported. They bring yes. all this money in. I, I think the number is the California food economy is something like $44 billion. Wow. A lot of money, right? Yeah. But if you look at the California GDP, it represents about 2%. The whole farming industry represents about 2%. Really? GDP. And what that's telling you is that things like high tech, you know, Silicon Valley, things like entertainment and Hollywood, mm. these things have gotten so massive and so profitable that they've dwarfed the farming economy mm -hmm. in terms of overall output. Right. And so when you think about it like that, um, it's a bit of a blip in California, even though it takes 80% of the water resources. But, you know, the other thing that I think it's important to say is that, you know, where I see it probably going is this, I, I see, I, I don't see this almond expansion ending, and I see, you know, I see this massive continued move in the Central Valley into almonds. And I think, you know, Imperial Valley where we get our winter vegetables. There's a place called the Salinas Valley. There's all these sure. valleys in California. Yeah. The Salinas one is on the coast, just south of San Francisco, and it's where we, it really is our salad basket, where uh -huh. we get most of our salad greens. It doesn't have great water situation either. It's, um, you know, uh, rapidly pumping. It's groundwater, aquifers. It doesn't have any access to uh, any surface water, so it's completely dependent on groundwater. Mm -hmm. So what I see is these places um, kind of slowly ramping down as the rest of the country. That, that's kind of my best case scenario. Yeah. Now, the farm, the farm worker question, you know, we're already seeing in the Central Valley that when they, when they fallow crops, it tends to be the more labor-intensive ones. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, basically almonds are labor-intensive to plant them. And after that, they're pretty capital-intensive. They've got these big machines that come through. I've seen it happen. That huge trucks come through and shake the, shake the trees. Yeah. And, um, and they, the, the almonds drop, and, and they're captured. And one guy in a truck can do an incredible amount of work. Wow. So, so the labor-intensive hand-picked crops that, um, that tend to get fallowed, and so you're already seeing in California farm country lots of Lots of pain, lots of unemployment. Um, people who are already low income are, you know, are, are, are suffering. And, um, and I think that, you know, I think that is a, a trend that we can uh, expect to continue. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that if this vision of the California-fying uh, vegetable production comes true, then you're going to see demand for farm labor in places like the Midwest places like the South, mm -hmm. so there's going to be a, a geographical shift um, in, in these things. And I think, you know, I think we can see that. I, I think it's a fair point to say that just as water has been this sort of invisible, we've come to expect all these, you know, this bounty of California fruits and vegetables as if water were free, as if it were this, you know, non-precious commodity. Mm -hmm. so we sort of externalized the cost of, of water. Yes. Uh, in a lot of ways. Very much so. Bonds, the, all this stuff is subsidized, basically. Like these giant irrigation projects were built with government cash. Um, 
the fact that there's no effective regulation on groundwater pumping is a kind of uh, subsidy, I think. Um, so we've externalized these costs. And farm labor, the cheapness of farm labor, the, the way farm labor is treated, uh, the low pay, the long hours, the danger, these are also externalized costs in our food system. And I think that, you know, what I hope is that this decalifornification process also includes an increase in the, you know, the labor rate for farm workers and uh, better working conditions, <laughs> things like that. Yeah, well, let's hold that thought, and um, we're going to take a quick sponsor break here, Tom, and then we'll be right back to talk more about um, farm labor and labor practices in general and how that ties into immigration reform and and why we're not getting any of that. So um, stay tuned, folks, for more with Tom Philpott. We'll be right back after this sponsor drop. And, um, yeah, and, yeah, more, more to come. Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. This is what doesn't kill you. Food industry insights, and we're getting big ones today from my friend and colleague Tom Philpot, who's on the other line on the line with me on the other end. Um, you're in Texas, right, Tom? That's right. Wow. Yeah, must be hot down there. But you're having your own water problems. Um, we so, are. We are, in fact. Yeah. No kidding. I mean, some certain towns in Texas are completely dry. Am I right? Yeah, we we have our own huge set of uh, long-term water issues here, for sure. Yeah, and you have a big cattle industry there, which is suffering mightily. So there you go. That's correct. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so we were talking about farm workers, and you've written a couple of pieces about um, Mexican workers who live in Mexico who export to the U.S., um, but, you know, their situation there is uh, – at least as bad, if not worse, than what was so well publicized in uh, that recent documentary, Food Chains, um, or, you know, if you read Tomato Land by Barry Estabrook, uh, The Immokalee Farm Workers, um, you know, essentially these immigrant farm workers, and, and even whether they work on farms picking vegetables or whether they work in slaughterhouses, they face a lot of the same issues. Um, but for the farm workers, they also face um, a lot of chemicals, and I wondered if you could just take a second to talk a little bit about how, um, you know, the chemicals that are routinely used in agriculture uh, have an impact on 
the people who are picking our fruits and vegetables, uh, both abroad and in the United States? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's a really wonderful book that came out about 20 years ago, I think, called The Death of Ramon Gonzalez. Uh-huh. And it is about how this, this whole question of how these, these chemicals impact farm workers. And what the, what the sort of thesis of the book is that the Rachel Carson campaign against pesticides, mm-hmm. uh, which was extremely important in the early 60s, it really drew attention to the persistent um, pesticide traces that cling to fruits and vegetables and got people worried about them and sort of got, you know, basically kind of galvanized the organic, one of the first big surges in the organic movement. Oh, for sure. Thinking about this, this question. And so what the, the industry did, and also the farm industry, you know, the agrochemical industry and the farm industry did, was that they switched to chemicals that are less persistent, that are less likely to cling to, to, to the, the stuff we eat, but are more impactful on the farm workers themselves. So it's sort of, it was sort of this shift in risk from consumers to farm workers. And so you've got, instead of um, pesticides that persist forever, you've got more powerful pesticides that hopefully, uh, in, in most cases, dissipate a lot, a lot faster. And so that was really, that really puts a burden on farm workers. And that's kind of where we are today with it, that, um, that it's true that there are problems with pesticide traces on fruits and vegetables and non-organic produce. And there's very little study on, you know, sometimes I'll find like five or six different ones on an apple and wow. all of them under the EPA limit, but there's very little study on how they interact together and have maybe a synergistic or cocktail effect. Mm-hmm. And all, all that's bad, but compared to the burden placed on farm workers, uh, it's, it's pretty minimal. And I think that's, you know, that's another one of these extern- externalities in the food system is that there's this class of people who basically take the brunt, chemical brunt of, of this. And, and so you see things like, you know, in North Carolina, uh, fruit and vegetable fields 10 or 15 years ago, I think it was less than 10 years ago, there were cases of birth defects, you know, high rates of birth defects uh, from women on, on farms, working on um, far- farm workers, I should say, not farm owners, farm workers sort of down there in the trenches of the field. And um, it's, it's a huge problem. It really has not been solved. And it also isn't much written about, which is, you know, as I sort of delve into this, I do feel like this year, you know, I hear more about labor issues and I, and I feel like there's more public awareness of what is actually going on down at the farm um, <laughs> and, yeah. and that it's not all that great. Um, and so I, I'm sort of encouraged to think that people are starting to focus uh, not just on, uh, you know, whether or not something is, is GMO, but really, you know, the people who are actually doing the work for us. Um, and what is the impact on them of using all the chemicals? Because, of course, you know, fruits and vegetables are not GMO. They are not, uh, they don't have the BT gene. You know, they don't, have, they don't right. you know, they, they do have to use chemicals. They do use fertilizers. They do use pesticides. Um, and I think that sort of gets lost in the shuffle, you know, because there's been so much press around GMO and so little right. press about you know, the other chemicals that are routinely used and are probably infinitely more uh, toxic. Um, But I wanted to just ask you about um, 
you know, when you taught when we you were writing about these Mexican workers and and essentially living in slave like conditions, um, isn't there any uh, can't the USDA or U.S. importers or U.S. businesses somehow enforce uh, certain standards? Not that we have great standards here. In fact, we don't. Right. But I'm just like I I think I find it curious that we you know that that all of these things remain sort of status quo as they have literally since the Dust Bowl. I mean, nothing has really changed for agricultural workers. Am I right? I mean, well, very yeah, little... I think you are right. The, the case in, in, this, um, in this community, this, this area of Mexico that, that we're talking about here, it's Baja, California, mm-hmm. where a huge amount of our winter fruits and vegetables come from. Essentially, the ones that don't come from the Imperial Valley come from pretty much due south of there in, in Baja, California. Uh-huh. And um, last year, this incredible L.A. Times re- uh, journalist um, named Morosi, Richard Morosi, did this just spectacular, uh, huge, I think it was like four or five-part package on the conditions of farm workers in, in Mexico. Uh-huh. And, you know, it really was. What he documented was just awful. It's just like people coming from, you know, deep in the south of Mexico in Oaxaca, places like that, coming up to work as farm workers on these contracts and just getting screwed in the contract. So what, what, the, what the owner will do is will say that, okay, we're, gonna not, we're not going to pay you until the very end of right. the contract, and uh, you have to buy all of your food from the company store. It's like script. And, it's like coal miners in Virginia yeah. in the, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century. <laughs> yeah. And so it's a, it's a sort of indentured servitude yeah, totally. that, that happens. And then the, the, the housing conditions are horrible. Sanitation yeah. conditions are, are horrible. There's violence, there's beating. And so what, what happened was his, his article um, caused such a thing and so powerful. And what he was documenting was, these are the fruits and vegetables that end up in Walmart and other, you know, giant retailers mm-hmm. in, in the United States. And so those retailers and the big farms down in Mexico were embarrassed. And they put together some kind of, I'm forgetting what the name of it is, but some kind of commission to, this is a late last year, early this year, um, mm-hmm. some kind of commission to address these concerns. And, of course, the concerns continued despite the formation of a commission. Yeah. I've and never noticed that a, a commission uh, does a much. Wild, yeah. Essentially a wildcat strike um, down in a community called uh, San Quintin uh, early a couple of months ago. Uh-huh. And it was, it was kind of a, a spectacular event where um, the farm workers not only went on strike, but they blocked the road wow. through which all the food comes up from Baja California, kind of in the, in the northern part of, uh, of Baja California. And just um, and Jay's just raised a big stink. Um, and they, you know, the, the way the unions work down there, they're, they're really corrupt. So it was a wild, it was apart a from the union. Uh-huh. And they ended up going back to work, but the labor unrest down there continues. And I think it's a story that is worth following. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I certainly will continue to follow it. And I'm sure you're going to be writing more about that as well. Um, yeah. <clears throat> the thing that I want to, I guess we only have about five, 10 minutes left. So I, I want to go into how, 
I mean, speaking of farm workers, speaking of uh, slaughterhouse workers, you know, meat processors, there's a lot of similarities. And, you know, the recent books that have come out, The Chain, The Meat Racket, Barry Estabrook's great book, Pigtails, that we um, talked about, that we, you know, talked about last week here, um, they all describe labor issues that are really very similar in the sense that these undocumented workers are being exploited. They have no legal recourse. Uh, unions don't really support them. Um, maybe they're afraid to join a union. You know, why Why is it that our government does not have any discretion over working conditions for, is it because they're undocumented? I, it's a, such a convoluted question. I mean, or such a convoluted yeah. issue. It's like, why do these immigration issues continue to languish in Congress when, you know, there are so many obvious uh, exploitative stories about how these people are abused by either this meat processing industry or the farm farm industry, agricultural industry. What, what, well, yeah. What's the I gridlock it, about? It comes, down to, it comes down to power and influence. I mean, I think in the, in the meat industry, if you look at the history of it, there was actually by mid-20th century, mid-20th century, after the, the jungle and after the unionization process that, mm. that happened in the early part of the 20th century, Meatpacking workers made a, a living wage. Oh yeah, made, it was a very good. They're essentially part of the yeah. the manufacturing miracle, the post-war manufacturing uh, miracle. Yeah, it was a good middle-class job. You know, n- not too far off in, sal- in terms of salary from the car industry. Went oh yeah, no, very happy. lucrative. These guys were making yeah. good money, no doubt. Yeah, made made this sort of you know vibrant middle class was part of that. And the, in the economic crisis of the 70s and 80s, the, the big, as the big companies were consolidating the industry, they simply did not want to pay those wages anymore. And so there was this massive union busting that went on. And Ted Genoway's book, The Chain, yeah. documents, documents that. And, um, and so when the union busting succeeded, well, they, you know, they needed somewhat, they needed non-union workers. And, you know, at the same time, there's a, this Mexican farm crisis that was happening simultaneously. And so you get this flood of workers coming up fleeing their farm crisis, partly based on, partly because of NAFTA, mm-hmm. also because of domestic policies. And, you know, you get this, you know, massive influx of non-union workers. And that's sort of what happened. And also the, the jobs became less skilled. There was a, uh, as technology, as automation and technology came into play, there were way fewer skilled sort of butcher jobs that is true. on these lines. Yeah, definitely sort of operating machines. And so, you know, it became, it went from a proper middle-class job to a job that pays about $10 an hour. That is also yeah. very dangerous. And very. without unions, there's nothing, there's no checks on, you know, there's no one fighting back on safety issues. So, it, you know, it's obviously a very dangerous job. And, um, and that fits into the profit model of these companies because they are, they are, their profit model is producing lots and lots of meat as cheaply as possible. And to do that, you need to hold costs down at every level. And this is a cost they've very successfully held down. In terms of, you know, and so it kind of, it's a kind of convenient situation for these companies because you get this, without immigration reform, with, you know, the sort of right-wing nativist yeah. uh, attack on, you know, let's build a border wall and militarize the border and all, all this kind of stuff, you get this disenfranchised, um, you know, these millions of disenfranchised people who, who can't vote, who are, are actually paying taxes. Um, 
uh, sales tax, um, you know, social security, it, um, it, it gets paid by them, even if they're, even as they're an undocumented worker, they're, they're paying. Yeah. They're paying huge amounts of taxes, mm-hmm. um, but they're completely disenfranchised. They're ununionized and no one's looking out for them. And right. so it makes them all the more easy to exploit. And that's kind of in a nutshell, the story. Yeah. And that is, it's, it's very similar to what's happening for farm workers as well. Right. I mean, isn't it essentially the yeah. same? It's just a different product. Um, but it yes. is essentially the same business model, which is same to course. round up, you know, uh, undocumented people who are trying to make it get ahead and send money home, undoubtedly, you know, always, in yes. fact. And um, and then, and then you know, there's this gridlock in Congress where, well, we, we don't want to change the status quo. We just want to shut the borders, but not until we've, you know, managed to meet our quota in the slaughterhouse. I mean, that's the thing yeah. that really makes me, you know, shocked and sad that yeah. it's so, you know, our Congress is so corrupt and so... Um, you know, so off the path of what we all think of as America. I mean, I hate to be like all sentimental about it, but you know, you do think that the country is supposed to stand for some things, you know? Yeah. And it's like, you know, at every turn is just eroded and eroded. I mean, you know, between the Bush yeah. administration and the big business and how they exploit people and the complacency of our population. And, you know, I just feel like crying when I think about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's, you know, it, it's kind of counter, counterintuitive that you would criminalize and systematically abuse the very people that you count on to see you. Yeah, I know. It, you know. Yeah, because massive. I mean, American workers don't want to go into a slaughterhouse now, not for ten bucks an hour when you can get hurt or repetitive injury. You know, repetitive motion industry in, injuries. I'm sorry, I'm sticking over my words here, but, but I mean, exactly. you know, reading those books. I mean, the the meat racket and the chain. I mean, to go back again and again to these guys. But I mean, it's like we, you know, everybody should be reading this stuff to understand what exactly is going on. And Tom, I'm waiting for your book. When are you going to do one about farm workers? Um, I am trying to get to get one off the ground on a different really? topic. Yes. But you're too busy writing a million columns about every single thing. I mean, everything I read. I'm just going to go off topic here because we only have a few more minutes. We can't actually solve the problems of the world. But, I mean, you had a fascinating piece about neonicotinoid uh, pesticides, which you and I have talked about on this show before. But you you did a little piece about how bees, as it turns out, absolutely love their nicotine. <laughs> That's that's what a that's what a study found. That killed me. It, it, was a, it was an interesting study because there was this idea that maybe bees, you know, bees can sense some things are non-nutritive or toxic mm-hmm. and avoid them. Right, but no. And so there was this wonder. Well, can they do that with neonics? And the answer was no. Like it wasn't sparking that neuron in their brains. And so then the next question was, well, do they discriminate at all? And the idea, the result was, yes, they do. They're drawn to it. Well, just as a human being is. I mean, isn't nicotine, it's a highly addictive substance. And they found that it was triggering this response in the bee brain that is very similar to one in the human brain to nicotine. And so they actually are getting a little fix off of it, but it's causing them all kinds of problems. Yeah, like colony that, collapse that disorder. That is a very, very disturbing result, considering, you know, it's not just honeybees, but all these different pollinators yeah. are affected. And it's not just corn and soybeans, but it's in, you know, these things are uh, seed treatment. The seed treatment situation, all these different crops 
yeah, including fruit and vegetable crops. Um, yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty bad situation. Yeah. Well, I mean, everything we've discussed has been such a buzzkill that I feel like just going out and blowing <laughs> my brains out. <laughs> well, let's go back to decalifornication. Yeah. So let's... that is, we're going to spread, we're going to do more fruits and vegetables in the Midwest, in the South, in the Northeast, maybe other places. And we're going to do that alongside this movement that's happened. You know, here's something hopeful. The, the fight for 15. Don't know um, about it. Tell me. Is, Fighting for higher wages for fast food workers. Uh, yes. Stuff like this documentary you just mentioned that just won a James Beard Award. Yeah. Things like Barry Estherbrook's book that's coming out that is fantastic. I've read it. It hit the paper. It hit the bookstores today, by the way, folks. Pigtails is correct. officially out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, now available. It's a must-read book. Yeah. These things are raising consciousness. So if we can decalifornify the food supply while we push for better conditions for workers on all of these, you know, factory farms, on farm fields, then we can start to see a, a future that doesn't look quite so grim. I love you for saying that, Tom. That was fabulous. So we'll wrap it up. People, if you want to know more about Tom Philpot, you can read his columns on Mother Jones. Um, do you have a website you want to talk about, Tom? Um, you can find me on Mother, you know, if you Google my name and Mother Jones, my my little personal Mother Jones website comes up. Okay, excellent. Um, and I urge people to read everything that um, Tom writes because he just is always right finger on the pulse. We're literally and truly. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks to my sponsor. And remember, folks, we're still in our Kickstarter drive for $35,000. If you haven't already donated to our Kickstarter campaign, please go to our website, find the link and pay up so that we can rebuild our website so that you can find all of these fantastic interviews at the touch of a button rather than otherwise. And uh, so thanks very much for listening. And we'll be back next week. We're going to talk about water again with the U.S. Geological Survey. Thank you, Tom, for that recommendation, by the way. And uh, we'll learn more about what's happening and and hopefully more reasons why we can de-California our um, our food system and thanks for that term I love it so long folks have a great week and thanks again Tom for um, joining me today thanks for listening people thanks Katie cheers thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 